Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. Now, the history of Indigenous people in this country doesn't seem like an obvious place to mine humor, though Indigenous people have been doing just that for decades, mostly outside mainstream popular culture. No more. The sitcom Rutherford Falls on NBC's streaming platform Peacock starts with a debate over taking down a statue and ends with a meditation on who gets the right to tell their own stories. And it is hilarious. Jenna Schmeeding, our guest this week, is one of the reasons that it is. She and Ed Helms lead the show, and Schmeeding is one of the many Indigenous people involved in the show's creation, including Sierra Teller Ornelas, the showrunner. Now, that level of representation would be groundbreaking all on its own, but the show goes even further than that. It's filled with commentary on gender, size, sexual orientation, and the emotional labor of marginalized people. But that doesn't make it serious. Just seriously funny. You don't have to take my word for it either. Schmeeding has been called a breakout star, and the show is expected to dominate at the Emmys. And, of course, you can hear for yourself. The only native artifacts in here are those bangs. <laughs> you seem smart. I'm guessing lots of college. Uh, not Ivy League, but so close it drives you crazy. Northwestern. This is why it's not worth being friends with white people. No. Something happening in that town. This is a story about stories. Damn. The podcasting voice is very manipulative. <laughs> <laughs> I am the steward of my family's legacy. That will resonate throughout history. This is a ginormous casino, but nobody wants to help my cultural center. Jana, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Anna. So I can introduce you kind of like professionally. Like I can say you're an actor and a podcaster and you're on this particular show, Rutherford Falls. But I think I'd love it if you could introduce yourself as you would like to be known. Yeah, no problem. Um, my name is Jana Schmeeding. I am Minakanju and Sichanku Lakota, enrolled Cheyenne River Lakota Sioux Tribe. Um, and I play Regan Wells and was also a staff writer on the Peacock show Rutherford Falls. All right, cool. Um, so I want to try a little experiment that might not work, in which case we're going to start the interview over. But I'm going to risk it. Great. Okay. I'm going to do a very general kind of summation of the plot arc of the show. Great. Trying not to spoil anything. I love this. Okay. Okay. <sighs> All right. Now it starts sort of with these two best friends, you playing Regan Wells, Ed Helms playing Nathan Rutherford. You are both historians of your communities in this show. That's right. And what starts out as a dispute over a statue turns into a wide-ranging exploration of who gets to tell whose stories. That's right. Okay, you're nodding. But now I want to ask you, did I do what the show doesn't want me to do? <laughs> As a no, white person, how did I, how did I, like, <laughs> no. did I miss, I'm actually genuinely curious, like, I don't, if, what stood out to me, if, I, if my lens is maybe, means something stood out to me that didn't wouldn't st stand out to others no i think that that i think your summation is absolutely accurate um it, it's not biased toward one side or the other uh and you know i think the show is 
absolutely trying to avoid those historical biases that we carry or, you know, I, I'll, I'll just add to your, um, to your sort of log line by saying like something that we as the writers were really interested in is this um, psychological phenomenon called the backfire effect. And it's uh, this thing that happens. And I think we're seeing it happen pretty uh, widely uh, right now in our culture where when someone's philosophical beliefs about the world, like a deeply held philosophical belief about our world is challenged, the response is more likely to be uh, to dig our heels in and double down and find ways to justify that belief as opposed to to grow and change and evolve with a new narrative. Uh, human people are just more likely to like uh, to find ways even despite facts <laughs> being provided. Yeah. Uh, you know, to like really just dig our heels in and uh, have this backfire effect, which causes a person to, um, you know, uh, really uh, yeah, you evolve dig in. in the opposite it, way. Yeah. yeah. We did a, a, a series on conversion experiences and that was mm -hmm. kind of a part of it, like confirmation bias and how, yeah, it's also yes. a, a sunk cost thing, which is that I've yes. already put my identity into this thing. So yep. I, I don't want to, that shouldn't be wasted. And right. we're not spoiling anything. All of this is a huge part of the show. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but you, you mentioned you were a staff writer and this show is pretty groundbreaking in terms of representation, both in front of and behind the camera. And I wonder if you could talk a little about that because it's not all maybe obvious to people. So... Yeah. Um, well, you know, of the 10 writers on the show, five of us are indigenous and we, uh, and you know, the non-native writers are also a very diverse group of people. And, and within the native, uh, the five native writers, we all come from different tribal nations and different backgrounds and different experiences. Um, and so what we're bringing to Rutherford Falls is um, sort of an amalgamation of a lot of our different experiences in this sort of colonized world. Um, and, uh, and yeah, our showrunner Sierra Teller Ornelas is Navajo and Mexican American. And she is, you know, uh, she has been working in this in as a comedy writer for, you know, over a decade now. And, um, so yeah, it's a really important, I, I think it's important. I mean, some, sometimes I get scared of calling it important because I feel like that adds like an element of pressure onto the show that like doesn't need to be there, but I think it's, uh, it's very meaningful and, um, it's meaningful to native people. And also we have been seeing that in terms of the response to the show, from our native audience, you know, people have been like, Oh my gosh, I am Regan or, Oh, I have that sweatshirt. Um, or, uh, like I know these jokes, I know these phrases, like I know these experiences. And so, uh, sort of this, um, we're having this experience, I think more widely where for the, for the first time, one of the first times native people are seeing themselves on, uh, on TV and in comedy. And also as writers, we were, you know, in terms of the world building of the show, we brought in a lot of native people into the costuming and the 
you know, uh, the music um, is co-composed. Um, uh, you know, we brought in formerly a tribe called Red, but now called Hallucination. And so there's there's Native people on a lot of different uh, levels of the de design process. And we as writers also contributed our thoughts about some of the design and the graphic design and, and the elements of the show. So, you know, we're really building a world that reflects our own experiences and our own world as Native people. I was going to ask you about those details because, you know, some of the ways that the diversity behind the camera shows up in front of it are pretty obvious, right? Like the casting mm -hmm. being the primary one. But like you mentioned some, I guess, inside jokes, maybe, and some details and like design. What are some of those things that are really important to you that stand out to you in the show? Um, well, I mean, I guess all of it has importance. I think, you know, when you're when you have this many native writers, you're really able to build a world. And um, not not saying that if you only have one native writer in the room, you <laughs> can't. But Native people have a really unique lens, um, you know, really unique lens uh, on whiteness and, you know, settler culture. And, and uh, I think that we are not always tapped as writers um, to be cultural critics, but we are, and we were raised like that. We're also raised, a lot of us are raised as like little historians. And when history is something that you have to protect your entire life and you have to defend actively in all of the spaces you occupy, um, you know, you're really good at making jokes about that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that's how kind of we show up for the audiences. We're just telling jokes that are honestly normal to us as Native people, but it's never seen on TV. This is the first time we're seen on TV. And also as a, as a person, you know, I'm a beater, I'm a Native beater, and I, you know, have a whole community of people who are uh, jewelers, Native jewelers. And so I made it a goal that like in every episode, Regan will wear um, a different pair of jewelry by a Native uh, jeweler. And so... I worked with the costume department to facilitate the purchasing of native jewelry, which is its own culture uh, in itself. Like the, the, like uh, it's like a high, high pressure. <laughs> like earring I was drop. just like waiting for that next word. Like it's high, it's high. It's please. It's like, a, it's like these, pieces of jewelry that are like highly in demand. It's like a very cutthroat world of act, uh, like um, purchasing native jewelry because they're hand, it's handmade. And it's like, there's only a few pieces and they make these earring drops. Anyway, I had to teach the costume department about how to acquire native jewelry and, and, and like get them involved. And, and so, yeah, it's not only, um, so not only is it indigenizing Hollywood in a way and, and teaching them about our ways and getting them involved, but it's also bringing native people into the process so that they have experience and exposure to this industry and can see where mm. one might fit in to the industry. So it's really like, you know, it's, a, it's kind of addressing the pipeline problem sometimes it's yeah. called, right? Like, like when people say, oh, I can't hire any native writers because, you know, they didn't go to Harvard. Um, although 
I'm sure many do, but like, yes. Or, or the excuse that, that there's just not enough. Yeah, not in, that's sort of what I meant. Know? It's like, the, it's yeah. not in the comedy pipeline, you know, which right. passes right. through these Ivy league schools for some reason. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah, don't, get it. I don't know either. <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad you brought up the diversity among native people. Because I will tell you one of my very favorite scenes in the entire series, and I'm going to try to keep it real general to not spoil it too much, <laughs> Okay, is when uh, Nathan is asked to dress as the Mickey Mouse of this proposed quasi-colonial <laughs> Williamsburg thing. Yes. And he does this rant where he's like, well, this cravat is from this culture and this wig is from this culture and these boots are taken from a pirate. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, that's, I think, uh, something that we, um, as writers, as native writers were excited about was sort of flipping this experience um, onto our white character and seeing how they deal with the reality that native people have to exist in. And especially in Hollywood, you know, I've seen so many, I mean, I just, for a podcast, I reviewed this movie called Buffalo Dreams. It's on <gasps> Disney. It's like an old, like weird, <laughs> from the eighties, no, it's from the nineties. It's from the nineties. And um, there are actors in it that are native actors, but there's, and there's, it takes place in Navajo country. And it's about this white kid who comes to Navajo country and, and, but there's this Buffalo element in, in the, it's called Buffalo dreams. And they like have to protect this, these, this Buffalo herd on Navajo lands, but it's like, and they have a Navajo actress, uh, Geraldine Keems is in it. And, and I'm just like, the, the entire, like they're wearing Navajo uh, clothing and jewelry at times, but like even the element of Buffalo, like Buffalo is a Plains Nations situation. Like Navajo are sheep people. <laughs> how could you have, oh, how could you oversee that huge glaring, like a cultural touchstone? It just makes no fucking how sense. How could they? How, 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 how could they, <laughs> how could they like, you know, it's just like these, and to make these actors, like to make a Navajo actress, uh, you know, portray this, it also speaks to the fact that in, in terms of Hollywood and, and the many, many misrepresentations that we face, uh, that when you don't have native writers crafting this story, um, or native producers, you know, having Sierra at the helm was major. It was completely, it changed so much. She had to advocate on so many different levels and be like, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. Like, you know, even on the publicity end, you know, making sure that nobody describes Michael Gray as, as a stoic character, little things like that, you know, that having to, <laughs> having to like really shift people's perspective about us and having the power to do so when you don't have those people, um, behind the camera, right. you, what you're asking of the actors is that they, they act as not only performers, but as cultural consultants, mm. like a lot of this work, this free labor that quite honestly, native people deal with it all the time. Oh, I but have like, questions they have to about do that. These. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Because there are about a thousand different conversations we could have that, that stem from this show because it raises just so many 
interesting um, ideas about identity and about storytelling, who's who, um, you know, uh, identification. But I kind of want to drill down on the relationship between Nathan and Regan. Because this show is called With Friends Like These. And I swear, sometimes I feel like Nathan's a little bit friend like this to Regan. You know? Mm-hmm. He, he puts a lot of emotional labor on her. She takes it on, you know? Yeah. But there's a pretty unequal division. Yes. And he's kind of insensitive sometimes, right? Yeah. And so I guess my I first... I would say a lot of the times, okay, especially yeah. the entire first half of the <laughs> I was just trying to be like, they are friends. Because one thing I want to put up front is that the friendship is believable in the sense that you are both very warm to each other. You know, there's a good yes. chemistry between you. I have, I watching the show, I never doubt that the friendship is real. Yes. But I wonder why. Which, yeah, to I be fair, other people is- ask that of Regan. I think that, yeah, this is a question that's coming up a lot in the show. And, um, you know, a lot of questions, especially from white people, uh, have been, why would she be friends with this guy? This makes no sense. And my response is always like, that is not makes perfect sense to me. I've had Nathan Rutherford's my entire life. I've had men who have leaned on me uh, and asked me to decenter myself for their thing a million times. I think as Native people, particularly Native women, this is a really common experience for us. And it has to do with this historical decentering of our narratives and of our value. Um, in all ways of our life, our ways have been devalued um, by settler culture. So we have, we have entire cosmologies and religious beliefs that were illegal until the 1970s. We have ways of being in this land that have been completely erased. And um, and also more interpersonally, we see what happens when she starts to center herself. Mm-hmm. We see the effect of that, which is their friendship implodes. It doesn't fare well under those conditions. Um, and... And I think that, you know, these are two people who are sort of this idea of ride or die. You know, they're really ride or die friends. They support each other through all their stuff. And Nathan is sort of this um, I, this character, this sort of Trojan horse character that leads us through this, this backfire effect. And we see not only how that manifests interpersonally with his friendship with the Native woman, but also how the, how, uh, sort of reflects the systemic decentering of a white narrative and a, and a recentering of a native history in this town and the ripple effects that we see um, amongst everyone. Um, so of course he, I, I think it's really like <laughs> rad in my opinion, that <laughs> Ed decided to take this on, you know, like to take this character on and to be like, sort of take the fall as Nathan You've got to ground it in a really likable character, right? Exactly. Like I you mean, have to make him. An, he, he's a guy. well-meaning white person, which is, by the way, the main audience for this show. Being yep. a well-meaning white person myself, you know, mm-hmm. um, and you totally called me. Yeah, as the white person, I'm like, wait, what? Although, yes, something that's come up on the show before is the fact that a lot of people of color, like, that's your friend. 
you know? Yeah. It's just, I think it's that's just also a reality that we yeah. understand to be true. And, you know, there was another, um, there was, I, I think it's interesting, you know, native, non-native and native people have had that, that feedback about their friendship a lot, you know, like uh, I would never be friends with this guy mm-hmm. or whatever. And, and that's fair. Like I, I, it's, it's also a comedy show, you know, you have to, you have to, in order to like make it comedy, you have to heighten things. You have to make them more in your face, you more grandiose than they probably actually are in reality. But listen, in the last year or two, I've had several friend breakups with white people. Interesting, And it's a reality. Like it's just something that I think we, as people of color, as non-white people are, are going to have to uh, deal with in our, in our lives as native people become more centered in our culture. (laughs) That just means that white narratives have to take a back seat and people who cling to those white narratives are also maybe going to have to take a back seat too in our lives. Um, I'm ready for it personally, (laughs) but it's also hard. It's so hard. It's, 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 tense and it's stressful and it's heartbreaking in a way because I love my friends I love my people yeah I was going to ask you so have you had a friend like this you've already just said lots oh yeah and it's it is it does seem like a no-win situation like so many situations for people of color um yeah in that there's emotional labor involved in just taking it and not saying anything there's emotional labor involved in trying to educate. Oh yeah. And I've been educating my entire life. You know, I was a kid who grew up in a, in a, you know, Conestoga wagon loving, uh, Oregon, you know, rural Oregon, (laughs) white, uh, culture, you know? So I, I was one of very few native people, uh, native families in my small town growing up. And so I was very used to my grandparents and parents telling us, you need to be able to talk about yourself. You need to be able to talk about your identity with your peers. You need to be able to create space for yourself. And, and here's how we're going to do that. And, you know, both of my parents were teachers. So we used to have like these native, um, Native awareness days, like Native American uh, awareness days at my middle school where where I would be giving like presentations to my own peers about my tribal identity and my and, and like, you know, teaching them about our history. And it was like two days out of the year. <laughs> You know, it's like the the labor involved, but also the necessary labor involved so that it, I mean, it, what it comes down to is my safety, mm-hmm. your kid's safety. If you can educate people and you have people that will be willing to like listen and learn, then you're creating a more safe environment for your children, um, especially in, in the educational setting where we are grossly erased or misrepresented. Basically, or misrepresented. I feel like those are the the pie chart. Those are that's a lot of the pie chart. Yes, and there's also emotional labor in the breakup, right? Like, right. That's also going to be really hard. And feel free not to answer this question, but I am curious if you can talk about maybe just in general these breakups. Was there specific events? 
Is it just like, I can't do this anymore? I think they, they come along there. They come along with events and they come along with events where a white friend has really shown their true colors and that I come, it's, it's like a simultaneously showing your true colors and your, your absolute ignorance in the face of all of the labor that I have provided for you as a friend, you know, it's, it's me becoming suddenly very exhausted by the fact that I have been open to you. I have brought you into my community. I have shown you who I am and you still don't see me. You refuse to see me. And that is where like I have, and it's honestly, it's taken a lot of therapy on my part to like draw those kinds of boundaries. Um, because I also, you know, am a person who has always been a little educator, you know, like, and, and it's hard to have those boundaries when you are like, well, I am also a tool of my own teaching. So I, you know, as an, as an adult woman, almost 40, I have to be like, oh, wow, this is where I can actually draw a boundary with these people. Like, I don't have to provide labor for them anymore. They can simply read a book. Um, <laughs> and, and, and why don't you? And, and also, you know, stop sucking the life force from me um, and do your own learning. And so that's really where it comes, what it comes down to is that like, I'm just tired of being a resource instead of a friend and being treated like a person where I can't bring my full self to this friendship. Like I can't bring my full identity to this friendship. Do you think that you would put up with less than Regan does? I think now in my life. Yeah. Yeah. She's a very generous Um, person. Like let's not, it's. Yes, totally. She's a part of the character. Generous person. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, she's a generous person and she also grows Mm -hmm. over the season. You know, she is drawing because, you know, decides to center herself and she decides that like, you know, there's a really important moment when they get into sort of this, um, big argument and she says, well, why is your history more important than mine? And I think that's kind of like the, um, that's the boundary is that like, like I, how come you can't support me in this effort to like preserve and, and like, uh, you know, showcase my history. Like this is, it's painful for me that you can't support me. You can't see past your own issues. And, um, and yeah, I think in my own life, I, I have certainly over the last couple of years, especially during this pandemic and, you know, uh, since native people have been taking up more space in journalism and in, in, in all industries, in, in the sciences and, and now in Hollywood, I, I, and I am able to more um, accurately draw those boundaries for myself and see them for what they are. And, and I feel empowered to enforce them. And it's taken that, it's taken that long for me to come to this point. And I just want to add in calling Regan generous, I don't think drawing boundaries is ungenerous. I think no. it takes just some generosity to self, basically, you know? Like being, yeah, having absolutely. some grace for yourself in addition, whatever grace you might have for other people. Um, right, right. 
Yeah, I would say that Regan is, uh, she is generous to a fault, you know, to her own detriment. And I know what that's like. (laughs) Oh, unfortunately, I really do. Jumping in to take a quick break for ads. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. Everything from coffee to toilet paper and shampoo to pet food, Public Goods is your new everything store, thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Rather than buying from a bunch of single product brands, Public Goods members can buy all of their premium essentials in one place with one beautiful, streamlined aesthetic. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly, and innovative products. Now, let's take a look at what eco-friendly products you can find from Public Goods. How about their gentle liquid hand soap with a blend of essential oils that are hard working on dirt but gentle on your skin? Who doesn't want clean hands with a dash of grapefruit and mandarin? And how about a healthier MSG-free take on the classic instant ramen that's still ready in minutes? That's on public goods. Or what about a delicious all-natural chocolate chip cookie baked in Savannah, Georgia with no artificial colors or flavors? They have that too. Knowing what's in your products and where they come from is important. And small changes in the way we shop can make a big impact on personal health and the world at large. Now, Public Goods uses a membership model to keep costs low and pass on even more savings to their customers. Best of all, you can make your first purchase with no obligation. We worked out an awesome deal for with friends like these listeners. Receive $15, that is $15, off your first Public Goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are so confident you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again. They are giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. Plus, right now, you will receive either a free pack of bamboo straws or reusable food storage wraps with your order. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash friends or use code friends at checkout. That is publicgoods, P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D com forward slash friends to receive $15 off your first order. With friends like these is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Is it capitalism? Is it a culture that defines people by how much they produce? Is it the demand that we all snap back to normal after over a year of sustained trauma? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling. You connect in a safe and private online environment, and you can begin communicating in under 24 hours. Anything you share is confidential. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, or you can send a message to your counselor anytime, and you'll get a prompt and thoughtful response, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. The service is available for clients worldwide, and it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. You can find therapists with expertise that may not be available near you. BetterHelp can connect you with professional counselors who specialize in depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, or trauma. You can check out the testimonials posted daily on their site. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash friends. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, betterhelp.com slash friends. With Friends Like These, it's brought to you by HVMN. Americans consume around 17 teaspoons of added sugars a day. 
If what you put into your body today is the foundation of what you become tomorrow, start reaching your goals by being aware of and cutting out unnecessary sugars from your diet. HVMN is obsessed with helping you reach those goals through modern nutrition. HVMN is a nutrition company that takes the mystery out of macros. They're results-driven, modern nutrition for modern lifestyles with less sugar than the competitors, and their products provide lifestyle and habit upgrades that help their consumers become healthier and better versions of themselves. By using real organic ingredients, HVMN has made keto and lifestyle improvements easy with healthy, low-sugar options that are great for you and deliciously satisfying. HVMN offers single items like MCT oil, keto food bars, and keto collagen powder, or you can grab a kit that includes all the essentials at an everyday discount. Whether you're curious about keto, want to improve performance, or boost brain and body wellness, HVMN will have a non-intimidating solution for you in tasty flavors. HVMN is modern nutrition for modern lifestyles, and their new kits make it easy to embrace healthy living and quickly feel the difference. Right now, HVMN is offering our listeners an additional 10% off your first order when you go to hvmn.com slash friends. Embrace healthy living today. Go to hvmn.com slash friends for 10% off your first order. That is hvmn.com slash friends for 10% off. So... You mentioned the, the show's representation of, of Native people. The show has another really interesting uh, choice of representation, which is, as you said, you are a person of size. Mm-hmm. And you have a lead role. You have a romantic lead. And I feel mm-hmm. bad bringing this up because I love it that the show doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. I mean, it is something that the that can be discussed because of the because the show doesn't bring it up. I think that it's like a really uh, interesting thing that you know. Let's hope that like four shows down the line, when fat leads can just be fat uh, as we are in our real lives, that like uh, you know. We don't have to bring it up. That's the hope. Is I, that eventually I, it's I, normalized, I, you know? I really loved it. I really, really did. Yeah. I, I was like, I was sort of waiting for the for the, the romantic lead to do that. I love a curvy lady thing, but no, no, right. he did not, no. which is awesome. <laughs> which is like, he just, yeah. it's just a, it's just a romance. They're just, they're just into each other. No more Absolutely. needs to be said. Yeah. And, and not even just around the romantic aspect of it. You know, I think a lot of times we equate, um, you know, someone's weight with their lack of being desired. Um, so that is an important touchstone, but also Regan, her character doesn't struggle with it at Mm -hmm. all in the show. She doesn't talk about herself. She doesn't reference herself or her size. And there's several eating scenes. I was going to mention that, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and like all of those things are, I think like really important for people to see and, um, and for us to culturally normalize because I live in a world uh, where a lot of my friends are people of size and, uh, and I watch all the TV and, you know, I think we are finally getting, and I have a podcast, you know, that talks about weight stigma and food culture and, and, um, all of the different intersections that come with being a fat person, um, and, and oppressions that come with being a fat person. And so, yeah, I think, 
uh, it was a decision that I was really weirdly insecure about in the beginning because I, I was, I didn't realize playing Regan that I had internalized all of these mm. messages that I've seen on the me- in media about, you know, fat women. And, and at one point I asked Sierra, I was like, are you, do you know, you understand the optics of this, right? Like I was feeling insecure about the romantic aspect, you know, all of these things. And I was like, are we going to talk about it or like whatever? And, and Sierra was like, she gave me the, the like realist response, which was, we're going to say something without saying something. And that has honestly resonated so much with the audience that like, they're seeing themselves in, in this character on so many levels. And a big thing for a lot of women is, yeah, she's, she's a a, a fat woman and, and she's also like ambitious and and stylish and funny and stylish and has romance. And like, she can snag, like, this is a totally normal experience that we see all the time as native people. And let's normalize it. I want to talk more about the intersectionality of native and, and, uh, weight stigma, but I have to mention, cause you mentioned about snagging. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of hotness in the show <laughs> and, and there is a lot of commentary <laughs> of hotness of, the show. <laughs> of men, pretty uh-huh. much only uh-huh. men. I have to assume that's intentional. Um, yeah, I guess. I guess uh, because it's from a lot of the show, I think is sort of through Regan's lens, you know, mm-hmm. I, it sort of starts again, like we're seeing Nathan and we're seeing Nathan struggles the first three episodes, especially. Uh, and that's kind of why I call Nathan's character a bit of a Trojan horse, because we go in thinking like, oh, okay, something's going to happen to this white guy, but like the, the balance, the lens sort of shifts. And then we see, we see, I think a lot through Regan's perspective um, because she is sort of this intermediary intermediary character between Nathan and Terry. And we are seeing the world through her eyes. And for that reason, yeah, we're like <laughs> commenting on the hotness of men. I was going to say, she like, is a Josh's, body, Josh's body gets a lot of commentary. <laughs> yeah, he's centaur hot. Um, <laughs> shoulders. Everybody's talking about his shoulders yeah. and his tattoos, which of course I love, but... Um, and he's, yeah. he is very cute. Like, like, you know, yeah, I mean, good job. Yeah. <laughs> Way to go, Regan. <laughs> I love Terry. Yeah, um, yeah. I, you know, I guess maybe I just am not at the certain age. I'm still like NPR Williamsburg, like oriented, which is weird. Cause I'm almost 50, but, um, that, maybe that explains it. Yeah. Well, I think there's like two things happening with Terry. First of all, Native women like have been watching Michael Gray Eyes throughout his entire career. So like, you know, we know a Michael Gray Eyes and we mm. loved him, you know, forever. He's such a, a an attractive. He is. Uh, oh, I mean, I mean, uh, oh, swear to God. Sac- I mean, he is hot. I'm not like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I will say that also um, <laughs> in terms of like the online rhetoric, there is something really weird that happens with white women, um, like uh, white middle-aged women and, and Michael gray eyes. Like, I don't know if this is appropriate for this podcast. So we might, oh, I can't wait to out. hear what you say next. Go for it. But like, <laughs> like there is some sort of like weirdly, um, 
fantastical, like fantasizing that happens about Michael Gray eyes. I mean, there was a woman who was like, just a, you could tell she was like a, a, a woman, a white woman in her fifties who was like, Michael Gray eyes. I would, I, I would fall to my knee. Just like the, oh, the no. like, okay, you don't have to say no. about Michael um is like and does it go it, on from it, there you don't have to say what it does but does it go on no from there? It oh, okay it doesn't, okay it doesn't say okay. it doesn't explicitly say but it's like i would fall down i would fall to my knees um for uh like terry tarbell it, it just like it it reeks of like uh savage indian savage indian man busty white woman cover of a romance novel like that you would find in Mm -hmm. a grocery store like that's the kind of vibes i get from like people online about michael gray eyes and i think that i think that we like we're really trying as hard as we can to make sure that like the characters every character the, the the like the response to stereotype is to give them a, a character is to give them an inner life mm-hmm. and we did that for the native characters and we even did it for josh you know josh he comes on the scene and it's like oh he's such a hottie and everybody thinks he's so cute and we think that that maybe that's going to be his his like primary function is just to be the eye candy in the show but he actually ends up having a pretty meaningful relationship with regan Mm-hmm. And he helps her build out her cultural center. He's like a caring, loving person. And in the end, he has a shift too. He has a little bit of a, you know, a choice to make about how he wants to tell his stories. And so um, he's a little more complicated than just the hottie. And again, not to give anything away, but his journey is also a little bit about who gets to tell whose stories, but not necessarily Absolutely. in a context involving Native people. Right. Absolutely. Well, it does evolve. But anyway, I can't give away too much. But yes, who gets to tell whose story? (laughs) And I just wanted to say, Michael Gray, I read a review of the show that says this, so I can't claim it as my personal insight, but I thought it was great, which is that he he acts as though he's in a drama, like he's in a, he plays it so straight. And it's awesome. Like, it, it just makes his everything funnier, you know? Yeah. Because he's just totally. so deep in that character, playing it so straight. I I I I want to compare him to Michael Scott, but only because of only because I one time like heard Steve Carell say that Michael Scott doesn't know he's in a comedy. Like, yeah, yes, and yes, but my, but uh, Steve Carell is a comedic actor, so it's right. hard for him to be. You know who I would compare him to is um the. Uh, I can't remember his name right now, but he is a like a classically trained black black actor who plays the police chief on Brooklyn Nine Nine. <laughs> oh, very uh, serious. Uh, again, you could describe him as stoic, uh, but but like uh, that's an intentional choice because you know um, it's like so funny to pair those straight people, straight men up with like a goofier with goofier counterparts. It makes their jokes hit mm-hmm. just as hard. All right, now a uh, very serious question. Could you help me out with the word Indian, please? Sure. I didn't mean that to be that serious. Actually, it was supposed to be funny because like there's a scene. <laughs> there's a scene in the in the show where 
the um, board of the casino really shake up the company that their adversarial company uh-huh, uh-huh. by continually calling them on using that word. It's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the word is used in the show. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, I would say that from, you know, I use the, the term Indian, but only for other Indians. Mm. Um, and I don't, I think that that's sort of the joke is that like when a white person says Indian, it's like a completely, the context is completely different. So yeah, white people aren't allowed to say it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, for, uh, forgive me. I should have, you know. I, no, no, no. That's okay. fine. All right. I'm just um, asking about I the will, word. I, yeah. The word has a, a lot of, you know, it has a lot of meaning and it's reclaimed by native people uh, for sure. And I think used within community and within community members. Um, but like outsiders using it is a little, uh, hairy. And that's, you know, we have terms like indigenous and native for that reason. Um, and I use native when I'm talking to non natives and, uh, I use Indian, uh, you know, lightly when I'm with other native people. What more do you hope to do? Like, this show's done a lot in terms of, like, the conversations that people are having. You know, just the sheer raising of visibility. Yeah. Um, I think that the um, writer's room issue hopefully is one that really resonates throughout Hollywood. It's something people are discussing more openly. But what do you, what's your, what are you looking at? You know, there's so much that I want to do. Um, I, there's so much that I want to do. I mean, I want to continue writing. I want to write a feature film. Um, I want to, uh, I want to write historical drama. Uh, you know, I recently, um, watched the underground railroad and have been reading a lot of, of, uh, articles and listening to interviews with Barry Jenkins. And, you know, I sort of asked this question on Twitter, like, why haven't native people had our historical drama, like our, our, our series yet? Is it an access issue? Is it that it's too painful? Is it that we, you know, it's already been taken by white people and told, um, by white people, um, with us as the performers, but we have no autonomy over the story, you know, and I'm asking myself, I asked this question sort of rhetorically on Twitter, but a lot of the responses were, it's an access issue. Of course we want to tell this story. And the thing that Barry Jenkins has been saying about the underground railroad is, you know, he hears a lot of the criticism that like no more pain, no more trauma. We don't want to see the slave enslavement narrative on TV anymore. And, um, you know, and I think that there is, and he and Barry Jenkins' response is, well, there's still a lot of truth that we have to tell about our history. And I really want to take part in that truth. And I want to humanize our truth. And that really resonates with me. I think that there's, I, I, I see my role right now as uh, using my skill in comedy to bring joy to the world. But I also want there to be space for us Native people to be able to 
um, creatively express our joy and our pain. And I think that also being able to um, tell our stories and tell our truths, however we want to tell them, is um, a really important piece of our sovereignty. It's a really important piece of our liberation that like we are able to make rom-coms if we want to, you know, there is space for us. And it's taken a long time to carve out that space and a lot of hard work to carve out that space for us. And I feel like we're in a really unique position right now to continue something that Sierra, our showrunner has said, you know, as an executive producer of Rutherford Falls, she said, I look at my native writers and I expect them all to become showrunners one day. And that's how it's done is you continue to work in within the, the system and, and tell your own stories. And so, yeah, someday I want to run my own show and, and have my own movies. And I want to continue performing and writing and collaborating with native people and people of color and um, telling the truth. Thank you, Jenna, so much for coming on the show. This was wonderful. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This week's Adorables Like These takes you once again behind the scenes at Crooked Media. You're going to hear from a development team superstar and her kitties, the orange-furred brother and sister dynamic duo of Laszlo and Jackie. Allison, who are you? Uh, my name is Allison Falsetta. I am the manager of development here at Crooked Media. And how long have you had your adorable companions and where did you get them? I have had them since uh, October of 2020, so relatively recently. Um, They are a year old and I got them from a rescue close by me in Los Angeles called Santi Dor. What are their names and what are the stories behind the names? Uh, They were not named by me, but I kept the names because I happen to also love the names. Uh, Their names are Laszlo Cravensworth and Jackie Daytona, which are from a a TV show called What We Do in the Shadows. And Laszlo Cravensworth in the show is a vampire, but his human alter ego is Jackie Daytona. Doesn't quite vibe with their personalities, but that is is what we call them. (laughs) So... We do believe that all animals are emotional support animals. How have your adorables supported you? Uh, So much. I mean, I moved from living with a roommate to living alone in my apartment uh, about halfway through last year. And it's been so nice to have other creatures in the house with me. They're very self-sufficient a lot of the time, but they do cuddle with me. And they, they seem to know when it's a good time to jump up into my lap and to make a Zoom a very sort of a a more lighthearted experience for people. (laughs) Um, What's the most you've gone out of your way for your adorables or the biggest way you spoil them? They get spoiled not too much because I'm like, I'm afraid of going too far and then having to like come back and and then they'll be like, why does mother hate us? But um, I would say that when I, literally the first week I got them, I thought I was being paranoid and crazy, but they were acting weird. And I was like, I've known them for one day, but I just feel like they're weird. And I took them to an emergency vet because I didn't even have a vet yet. Um, and spent a lot of money and ran around and spent like two days out of work. Uh, turns out they did have like fevers and problems. So that made me feel better. And everyone was like, how did you know after like a day and a half of owning them? And I was like, I don't know, they're cats. They were hiding under the bed. It seemed weird. 
Um, that's probably the biggest way I've gone out of my way because I truly was like a week into cat ownership and and crying in my car outside of an animal hospital. <laughs> what cause would your adorable support? If they have different personalities and would support different causes, we could know that too. That's such a funny kind of hard question. I will say that everyone... <laughs> I have a joke with my friends that my that my cats are straight white men. Um, that they're orange cats. You know, orange cats are almost always boys. They're a little bit, they have like himbo energy, we like to say. Um, I think Laszlo's a bit of a, he's kind of a jock. He's not too bright. Love him to death. Jackie is, is like a, a science nerd, weirdo, like shut in his room doing like AI. That being said, what causes they support? I feel like Laz was actually quite like empathetic. He probably would actually be like animal rights activist. I could see that for him. Potentially vegetarian, like living his best life. I think Jackie would be into something really weird and like heady and intellectual that doesn't quite make sense to all of us. So he'd be like, we all have to go to Mars. And he'd be like very obsessed with like manning a Mars mission or something. I love that. Last question. Can you do the voices of your adorables? <laughs> I don't really, I mean, I could try. I like, <laughs> I have like a horrible voice I speak to them in. I don't really usually like, I do speak as them sometimes. And it's mostly two things. Oh my God. Speaking of Jackie is, um, he's in the sink. I just heard him. But anyway, um, they could say what cause they're supporting. Like you need something for them to say. The only thing I usually have them say is things like, mother, we love treats. <laughs> like that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> and then I usually like, sometimes I have Jackie speak in French because uh, I call him Frère Jacques, you know? I'm like, he's brother Jackie. And they would be like, mother, we are not French. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Well, that's 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 it. That's the interview. <laughs> Thank you so much. Great. And now go get them. Now you have to go get them and, and show them on okay, camera. Okay. So. I'll go get them. And that is it for the show. Thanks to Janice Meeting and Allison Falsetta for their time. Jana's show, Rutherford Falls, is streaming on Peacock right now. This show is a production of Crooked Media. We are produced by Allison Herrera with assistance from Jordan Waller. Izzy Margulies books our guests. This episode was engineered by Louis Lino. Now, Whitney Pastrick's dog, Wally, was named after the Stonewall Uprising. And I know that Wally and the rest of us are wishing each and every one of you a happy pride. Protect trans kids, meet people where they are at, and above all, take care of yourselves. Mm-hmm.